Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk.
Hello everyone, my name is Malcolm Duncan and welcome to Bangor Worldwide 2020. What a privilege it is for me to be welcoming you on behalf of all those who have worked so hard to organise and deliver this year's event. I know it's going to be slightly different, we're going to be online, it's going to feel very different, but right at the heart of Bangor Worldwide, the conviction that God raises people up to send them to our cities, to our nations and to the world is still the heartbeat of all that we are seeking to do. So thank you so much for taking the time to engage this year. And I really do pray that you will get a lot from it, that you will look carefully, that you will engage with the addresses and the online content, and that it will inspire you 
and inspire those around you to make a difference in the world for Christ. So as you listen, as you engage, and as you participate in all that we will be doing across this year's event, my prayer is that God would bless you, that he would inspire you, that he would give you a vision and a dream and a sense of what he might be asking you to do, and that through everything that we engage in this year, you will sense the Holy Spirit speaking into your heart and opening up possibilities of service and mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you so much once again for joining us. Uh, tonight we're going to be hearing from Lindsay Brown and I'm going to introduce him in a moment. But before we do anything else, I would really love to pray for this year's event. So I invite you now just to take a moment to pray with me. Father, I want to thank you for every single person joining and participating in Bangor Worldwide this year. We are very aware that this is a very different kind of event, but we also know that you remain faithful and that your spirit is present in every living room, in every study, in every kitchen, in every space around the world and across Northern Ireland where people are joining in this convention. And I dare to ask you that the event will reach more people and have a greater impact than any of the previous events, precisely because it is so accessible online. I pray for the engineers, I pray for the preachers, I pray for the singers, I pray for the contributors, I pray for the administrators, for every single person involved in delivering Bangor Worldwide this year. And I ask that you will give wisdom and grace and patience. Let all of the technology work and may all of us that engage with this remarkable event sense the nearness of your spirit and you drawing into our hearts and into our lives. I pray, Father, that you will bless and anoint Lindsay Brown's message as we listen to it in a moment or two and that you would speak into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. I thank you for your goodness and for your grace. I thank you that you are a God who has at your heart a desire to reach men, women, boys and girls and see the world transformed. And that you, our missional God, call us to follow you and to serve you and to lay our lives down before you in service. We ask that you would be the centre of all that we are and the centre of all that we do. And Father, as we engage in this year's event, whether we be pastors, preachers, uh, traditional missionaries, people who are working abroad, doctors, nurses, engineers, wherever we are, whoever we are, thank you that we have a holy vocation in you. And I pray that this year you will inspire us as we think about what it means to pray, what it means to give, what it means to go, what it means to see our mission field in front of us and to work with you, the Lord of the harvest, because we know that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. So this year, would you raise up women and men and young people who will say yes to what you're asking, who will step into the slipstream of your purposes and your call. I pray that Bangor Worldwide would be used by you in 2020 to inspire individuals, to inspire families, to inspire churches, to inspire employers, and that, Lord, we will see a wave of mission released as a result of this event. We pray that it will all bring glory and honour to your name. And we ask for your deep blessing upon it all. In Jesus' name. Amen. Holy, holy. 
Decades later, Logos Ministries International is actively working with Christians all over the globe, evangelizing communities, equipping believers, and strengthening local churches. The Lord has been tremendously kind to LMI, and as the ministry continues to grow, so too does our team. We currently have an international network of coordinators and partners in countries including Burundi, Nepal, and Kenya and two sets of cross-cultural ministries serving in Southeast Asia. Locally, you may have crossed paths with us as we have spoken at many church services, or you may be in contact with our youth and schools outreach team, who are working with young people in secondary schools and youth groups across the province. If you have a heart for missions, or if you are exploring what you believe may be a call to missionary service, please visit the LMI website at www.lmi-org.net or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter as we would like to encourage you and help you. Our aim today remains the same as it was in 1977. We want the world to know Jesus. Tonight we have the privilege of hearing from Lindsay Brown. He is a Welshman and he is married to Anne and they currently live in Wales and Lindsay enjoys walking in the Welsh hills and he loves sport. Um, their son Owen works for Christians in sport and Lindsay has a long, long history of working with students and bringing the gospel to them. He was the um, General Secretary of, the, of IFES, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, uh, from 1991 until 2007 and he was the director of the Lausanne movement from 2008 until 2017. Lindsay is currently the director of the Fellowship of Evangelists in the Universities of Europe which has 60 evangelists who share the gospel in mission weeks and other events across universities in Europe and this last year they spoke in 200 different events across uh, 30 European countries. Remarkable. He's the author of a book called Shining Like Stars, The Power of the Gospel in the World's Universities, which is published by IVP. 
and he is currently working on another book which explores the missiology of Luther and Calvin. Lindsay studied theology in Paris and history in Oxford and we look forward to hearing what God has to say through him to us tonight. Hello, greetings from across the water in Wales. My name is uh, Lindsay Brown and for the last 40 years I've been working in various capacities with the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, IFES, which is the global body linking together Christian unions in universities, these days in 160 countries around the world. In the last 12 years in particular, I've been heading up a ministry called FOIA, the Fellowship of Evangelists in the Universities of Europe, which has as its goal the unearthing and developing of a network of what we would call persuasive evangelists or public evangelists all across Europe who work in partnership with Christian unions in universities across Europe to reach fellow uh, unbelieving students with the gospel. This evening I'd like to comment briefly on a couple of major developments over the last uh, 60 years or so um, which have contributed to the reshaping and um, the nature of uh, mission all across the world. The first of them is the development of urbanization or the growth of cities. Let me share with you some facts regarding contemporary urbanization as this seems to be the major focus of your conference this weekend. In 1850, geographers used to speak of uh, mega cities or world-class cities with a population of one million people or more. There probably weren't more than 10 to 12 of those cities in the world at that time. By 1980, however, the number of world-class cities with a million or more population had grown from, say, 10 in 1850 to about 225 in 1980. By the year uh, 2000, it was 400 uh, cities. These days, half the world lives in 100 cities. One third of all the economic activity in the world take pl takes place in cities and the vast majority of innovation. 300 years ago, only 3% uh, of the world's population lived in cities. Most lived in smaller villages and towns and in the countryside. Today, 50% of the world lives in mega cities or major cities. But by 2050, it is anticipated that 75% of the world's population will be living uh, in these cities. Now, this has major implications missiologically uh, for uh, the work of uh, the Christian church around the world. Uh, for example, um, uh, many unreached people groups uh, can be found in major cities uh, because of the movement of peoples around the world. In Cardiff in South Wales, for example, we, we have the, one of the best opportunities in the world to reach people from Somalia, a country where there are very few Christians because there are so many Somali immigrants uh, in Cardiff. Some of the best places to reach Iranians in the world are uh, in major cities in England. Iran has one of the fastest growing churches in the world with perhaps a million uh, people these days. But quite a number of Iranians have been converted 
uh, in major cities in the UK. In addition uh, to the opportunities to reach and reach people groups, many of the next generation, the younger generation, would like to live in cities and tend to gravitate towards them. Culture shapers, that's people influ influential in TV, uh, in the arts, in media more generally, tend to be found in major urban centres, uh, as well as uh, large numbers of the very poor. So uh, the growth of urban centres <coughs> excuse me, has major implications for the work of mission in the, in the 21st century. About 15 years ago, London University uh, commissioned some research under the general heading of the endless city to look at the growth of urbanization around the world. The head of the research team was um, someone from uh, southern southeastern Europe called Dejan Sujic. Um, and at the end of his summary of the work, he wrote, the city is the only game in town. Well, this may be understated uh, because the Bible tells us that we need to reach all people, whether they're in urban centers uh, or in the countryside. Uh, but he has a case in point, given the growth of the city, as I've just mentioned. Some people tend to have a rather negative view of the city in the Christian world, uh, thinking or believing that the city is a place to which people have fled away from God. It's a place of where you can hide yourself, as it were, from um, the Christian message. Uh, Jacques Ellul, a famous French sociologist, um, seemed to hint at this in his book, The Meaning of the City. Uh, he came from a Reformed church background uh, in Bordeaux. The counter-argument to that, however, is that the Bible starts with man in a garden and ends with man in a city. And um, so the Bible seems to authenticate the importance of the city. In addition, when you move to the New Testament, uh, you can see from in the book of Acts and onwards that a lot of the early church planting of the early church took place in major cities, beginning at the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, moving on to Antioch, Philippi, uh, Thessaloniki, Rome and elsewhere. And many of the books or letters in the New Testament were written to churches which were planted in cities. Then some well-known pastors in our own generation, like Tim Keller, after pastoring a church in Manhattan in New York, has formed an agency called City to City uh, with the goal of equipping churches um, to become vibrant Christian communities and testimonies in the major cities of the world. So the cities are important. Um, it's a challenge to reach out to people in that context, and there's no easy way, but um, the development of attractive communities is very important. I remember once talking with the great Anglican church leader John Stott just before he died and asking him what he thought people in Europe were looking for today. He said, I think they're looking for three things. A sense of personal significance, a sense of the transcendent, even if they don't look to the God of the Bible, they'll tend to worship other gods. And thirdly, he said, I think they're looking for a sense of community. And he said, the wonderful thing is, uh, the Christian gospel and the church has uh, answers to the search for all these three things. Well, it's in the formation of churches that we can provide an, all, an alternative, attractive community for people who are looking for uh, that in urban centres. 
But the second great development uh, in not just the last 40, 50 years, but the last few centuries has been the development of the university. In uh, the time of the Reformation, from which all Protestant churches came in the 16th century, uh, Martin Luther almost prophetically said in 1523, if you want to change the world, start with the university. Charles Malek, uh, one-time General Secretary of the United Nations, in his series of lectures in 1981, said much the same on the theme of the university uh, and, the, and the church, when he talked about seeking to transform society by impacting the universities. This is because all surveys taken around the world indicate that the vast majority of people uh, who profess faith in Christ tend to do so in all cultures before they've reached the age of 25. And the time in university is a time when, which is formative when they're seeking to put together their value systems and their convictions by which their lives will be governed. People, Some people, of course, do become followers of Jesus Christ later on in life, but a large number do so uh, before the age of about 25. And during the university years, they're thinking of the framework which will shape their lives in the decades to come. Just in the last few weeks, we've seen uh, heard of the death of J.I. Packer, one of the most famous theologians in the 20th and 21st century. Well, he was converted in his uh, Freshers' Week uh, in Oxford University. Several famous Ulstermen have become Christians in university. C.S. Lewis, you will know, became a Christian in his early 40s uh, when he started to read the New Testament texts for himself uh, while he was a young professor uh, in Oxford University. I myself studied there and knew someone called Alastair McGrath, who was a, an Ulsterman. I remember him becoming a Christian in the first year when he was doing his doctoral studies in Oxford. He went on to complete those and now he's Professor of Religion and Science in Oxford University and a gifted uh, apologist. So uh, quite a number of Christians, Christian leaders have become Christians in university. And in addition, many uh, people who go there, uh, already Christians, tend to shape, have their minds shaped by convictions which are going to guide them for the rest of their lives. For these reasons, it's important to reach out to university students. The best ways to reach them tend to be through uh, friendship, uh, through small groups, uh, particularly looking at the person of Jesus and the text of Scripture, and through publicly communicating the gospel. That's why FOIA was started, to emphasize the importance of persuasive evangelism. Persuasive evangelism is referred to quite a number of times in the New Testament. If you read the Acts of the Apostles, you'll often see that Paul persuaded people. In other words, he engaged in publicly articulating and defending the Christian faith. And the network, which is called FOIA, seeks to do that through a number of means, through uh, traditional evangelistic preaching, through uh, dialogue, and through apologetics, provide, providing a reasoned response to the challenges which unbelievers bring. Now I'm going to show you some images which highlight the nature of FOIA, which will perhaps help you to understand what we're trying to do. Uh, the first is that FOIA is the Fellowship of Evangelists in the Universities of Europe. What is it? It's a network of Europeans who are committed to the publication of the gospel in the universities of Europe in partnership with IFES 
national movements, including your own in Ireland. When we started, our vision was to develop a network of at least 60 university evangelists by the end of this year, with at least one in every country. Twelve years ago, there were only five or six uh, public university evangelists in Europe, and they tended to be in the UK and Germany. Wonderfully, the number has spread to 33 countries. There are still seven in which we don't have one person uh, who is gifted in articulating the gospel publicly in a university context, but we're trusting God to see those uh, people unearthed and developed uh, in the coming months and years. Our goal has also been to host at least one mission week or events week. That's a, a series of evangelistic talks in every country by the end of this year. And we're well on our way to seeing that happening. What are some of our distinctives? Well, we work in teams with local evangelical student groups, focusing on public communication at three levels, proclamation, apologetic lectures, dialogue and debate. We focus on the key universities to start with in a country, bringing together um, staff from across the country, uh, try to make a big splash with God's help, and then people capture a vision to do the same in other universities across the country. And we understand that proclamation must be done in conjunction with personal and small group evangelism. This seems to ha have happened in the Acts of the Apostles. And in churches and in student groups around the world, these tend to be the groups which grow when they work on all these three fronts. In addition, we use creative approaches that engage with the culture, including music, drama, film, art, and which open the way for the proclamation of the gospel. We don't see these things as supplanting the role of proclamation, but in supplementing it and serving the spoken and proclaimed word. These are the countries uh, in, currently in which we have members of the FOIA network, people who give themselves to publicly communicating the gospel. And in the last six years, as you can see from this image, uh, nearly every country in Europe has hosted now uh, evangelistic uh, mission or events weeks. We work together not just as a group of 60 evangelists who include pastors, youth workers, uh, full-time student workers, but also in partnership with a growing group of academics, uh, including uh, several from uh, Ireland. Uh, John Lennox, you will know well, here's an image of John speaking in the University of Prague just two or three years ago. Often the academics come in and speak from their academic perspective, uh, that opens the door for the evangelists to go in in the following week and be more direct in their evangelistic approaches. David Glass is another person from Northern Ireland who's been engaged in doing this in several European countries, most notably uh, in recent months in Belarus, where, as you know, there's a lot of tension at the moment because of recent elections. Now, what's wonderful about the students is that they're very creative in the way that they reach out to their friends. Let me give an example here. This is an image from a series of images from Malta, where there was a very small student group and they were trying to work out how can we communicate to all the students in our, in our university when we only have five Christian students to work with. So they decided to do a questionnaire or a survey asking students the question, if there was a God you can, and you can ask him one question, what would it be? They asked the students to pin their questions up on a notice board, which you can see there, and then they agreed to speak to the top six questions. They were very bold in writing to even the prime minister of the country. You can see his image there. He's the one with the suit on. Uh, the others are students. 
and asked him how he would answer the question. If there was a God and you can ask him one question, what would it be? And he said, I'd ask God, what constitutes a virtuous life? Well, it's not a question most people ask today. It shows he was classically trained. It's the kind of question Aristotle and Plato would have asked. Uh, but at least it was the question that was on his mind. And then anyway, on the basis of these questions, they arranged then a series of public evangelistic meetings to which a good number came. Again, some of the leaders in the student work are very bold. You will recognize certainly the person on the right of the image here. He's Novak Djokovic, the number one tennis player in the world. Well, the speaker on this occasion uh, was this young man on the left who uh, had uh, his uh, a victim of the thalidomide uh, drug, Nick Vujicic, his name was. He's ethnically Serbian. And he had gone to Serbia to give a series of evangelistic uh, addresses in the universities. The leader of the student work, who knew Novak Djokovic, contacted him and said, Novak, could you do us a favour? Would you advertise the fact that Nick is coming to speak in the university on television? So he did. And here they are, just before the television programme took place. As a consequence, 700 students turned up in the University of Belgrade to hear Nick's message. Uh, when students have done their surveys, they address, as I mentioned, the key questions. Here are some debates that they hosted uh, in Malta. Uh, are the Gospels historically unreliable? Uh, does science make God redundant? Um, being human does not include God. Humanism is enough. And off the back of that, then, they moved on to others, other more direct uh, questions like, would the world be better without religion? Is God a the God of the Old Testament a terrorist God? Are you there, the existence of God? And we always then aim to move on to the core of the Christian gospel in the second half of the week, focusing on the deity, the death and the resurrection. If we've not done that, we haven't communicated the Christian gospel. But first we have to clear the debris and the questions out of the way before we can speak into that situation. In the last uh, two years, we've hosted uh, over 200 of these events or mission weeks in 33 countries across Europe. We've seen the birth of a network of small group and personal evangelism uh, training to complement public proclamation and the growth of this new network of 50 academics bearing witness to Christ alongside the university evangelists. We'd appreciate your prayers as we seek to expand this work all across the continent. We, we take our lead both from the scriptures and from what we see happen in the Reformation where Luther and Calvin went into the world to bear witness to Christ. They didn't ask people just to come to church to hear them, but they went to where the people were, especially the places of influence, particularly uh, the universities. It's our conviction that we have, as it were, to fight back in going into the world and seeking to bear witness to Christ in these situations where people are influenced uh, and shaped in their thinking. The media, television, radio, newspapers, uh, but also the university, which is the theatre in which we work. Now, as you know, um, there are uh, there's been a huge change in this world with the advent in this year with the advent of COVID-19. So we'd appreciate your prayers for us in the coming months uh, uh, that we'd be able to make good use of um, social media to communicate the gospel. We, we're using Zoom for evangelistic meetings all across Europe uh, at the moment and doing series. Scotland, Scottish universities just hosted 
a series of, of 10 evangelistic meetings um, uh, via Zoom, uh, which was hosted by all the universities together. And a large number of students tuned in uh, to watch those. Um, there are many other ways, creative ways, in which students are seeking to reach out uh, through social media to connect with their, their friends. Please pray for the, the new academic year that across Europe will use these means to connect with students uh, and share the gospel with them. But please pray also that the situation would settle down so we'd be able to engage in hosting these events weeks or mission weeks. Uh, again, over 200 already are planned for next year in 35 European countries. We're praying that God will bring people to himself uh, through those. And then please pray that doors will open across universities all across the continent and please support your own uh, Christian unions, both in Ulster and in the Republic of Ireland. And if you're tuning in from elsewhere, they're also because they're, they have the potential to be a potent influence in communicating the gospel uh, in cities in our generation. Some people say that um, Europe is a hopeless continent. Well, our conviction is that it is a continent uh, where there is hope, uh, because the gospel is being proclaimed in cities and universities. Please support us in that and pray that God will raise up, up others to be involved in that ministry too. Thank you. I am deeply privileged and honoured to bring the opening address tonight to you as part of our first evening at Bangor Worldwide. And our theme for this year is an important one. It reminds us of the goodness and the grace of God, but it also reminds us of the deep and the profound calling that God has placed upon our lives. To the ends of the earth, a vision for the city is what I would like to speak to you about tonight. And I pray that as I share God will open our hearts and our lives to his purposes and to his plans in a new and in a profound way. We stand in uncertain times when politically things are changing, when the pandemic of COVID-19 has caused so much reflection, so much examination and so much change in our lives, in our churches and in what it means to live for the purposes of God. I have heard countless numbers of Christians who have struggled with not being able to gather together, of course, who have found it difficult to work out how to do and to be church 
and to be God's people in this day and in this generation. And that's not just here in the United Kingdom, but with some of the work that I do around the world, from Senegal to South Africa, from China all the way to Copenhagen, from Colombia to Brazil, in Iran, in Iraq, in Syria, in uh, South Africa, in Mozambique, in India, in um, uh, Cambodia, in Laos, in Vietnam, in Thailand. Christians are trying to work out what is it that we are called to do in this day and in this generation. God knows exactly where we are. God knows exactly what we are facing. And it is my conviction that in his sovereignty and in his purposes, the theme for this year's convention is so timely to the ends of the earth that we might be God's people always and in all circumstances and that we might live intentionally and purposely for him. In a moment, I'm going to read three scriptures with you and seek to bring them together in a way that can help us to understand what God might want to begin to unpack and unfold in our lives this week. But first, a story. I am reminded of the very famous tale about D.L. Moody, who as a young man and as he embarked upon his preaching and ministerial career, if you like, having been a, a shoe salesman in Chicago, was listening to a preacher who talked about the fact that no one in human history had ever fully submitted their lives and their wills to God's purposes. And as D.L. Moody listened to this great and powerful challenge in his heart, he said, Lord, let me be such a man. Let me live my life for your glory. Let me lay all that I am and all that I have at your feet. That desire that motivated him meant that he became one of the 19th century's most powerful evangelists. And I wonder if now in this season and at this time, God might be raising up a generation of Christians who will say, Lord, let me give everything for your glory. Let me lay down all that I am for your plans and for your purposes. That will look very different to each of us. And yet in the midst of all that is happening around us, surely one of the most important things for us as believers to do is to say, God, what do you want me to do with my life in this season? Where can I fulfill your purposes and live for your kingdom most effectively in this season in my life? I'm reminded that in the Second World War, um, C.S. Lewis preached a, a powerful sermon in Oxford that became a little book called The Weight of His Glory. In the midst of all of the uncertainty of the Second World War, C.S. Lewis recognized that there was a more profound question that was being raised by the challenges of the world's politics and the world's culture. It wasn't just how am I going to be fed? It wasn't just how am I going to survive this? It was what is life for? People were confronted with their mortality, with the limitations of their understanding of the world. Their, their worldviews were exposed as faulty. And in the midst of that, C.S. Lewis recognized that actually the deep and the profound questions of life required an answer. Who am I? Why am I here? What do I do with a life that I know is limited? How do I live well? These are the fundamental questions that we should be answering for our cultures, for our cities, for our nations and for our worlds. So as we embark on a brief exploration of God's word, I pray that he will speak into your life, your heart, your family and your church. There are three core passages that I would really like to read with you. The first is the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. The second is the words of Jesus recorded in Acts chapter one. And the third 
are the words, or at least part of the words of the letter sent from Jeremiah to the people of Israel as they were being pulled into exile. So let's turn first to Matthew chapter 28. And all of my readings are taken from the Anglicized version of the New Revised, the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Matthew chapter 28 from verses 16 through to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The second reading is taken from Acts chapter one, and we're going to read verse eight. You will know the story very well. The apostles are in Jerusalem. Christ is about to ascend. Uh, that story is told in verses nine through to 11. He's already told them in Acts chapter one, verse four, that they are to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, uh, the promise of the Spirit's power. And in verse eight, we read this after they have said to Jesus, will you restore your kingdom now? Jesus tells them it is not for them to know the times of God's purposes and plans, but that they are to remain where they are. And here is the verse. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then the third reading is taken from the uh, book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet that lived and prophesied at the end of the um, seventh century, uh, end of the eight, the end of the seventh century BC, and he witnessed. Uh, Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Israel being drawn into captivity, which began um, in 606 BC. And as Jeremiah sees um, his people being drawn into captivity in his city, Jerusalem being devastated, his heart is broken for it. He writes lamentations um, and uh, records his heartbreak as he sees young people's lives devastated, families devastated, communities, economies, children devastated by the um, exile that the people of Israel are experiencing. And all around him, prophets and preachers are saying that God will not let this happen, despite the fact that the northern kingdom had been taken into captivity just a hundred or few, 120 or so years before. Um, they thought it would never happen to the southern kingdom. And yet God reminded them and repeatedly warned them that if they didn't obey, they would be taken into captivity. Jeremiah 29 contains Jeremiah's letter that explains to the people of Israel that they are going to be drawn into captivity. And I just want to read one section of it, although we will comment on other parts of it in a moment or two. It is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. As they are being drawn away from their city, as they are about to face the exile that will last 70 years, here is what Jeremiah tells them that God has said from verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Amen. 
And God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Sisters and brothers, how do these three passages tie together? On this opening night of Worldwide, how can I inspire or help you to see this big picture that we have for our event this week to the ends of the earth? And then tie that into the topic that I've been asked to speak to, seek the welfare of the city. I think it is very straightforward. The reality is within the context of the scriptural narrative that we are called to stand until the end of time and to go to the ends of the earth. And that is one of the things that we will be exploring across our week together this week. I am reminded of the words of the great Christian evangelical Anglican, John Stott, who took Matthew chapter 28 and at Acts chapter 1 and held them together with a profound sense of God's purposes and promise. He understood that these were a call that had two sides, one coin with two sides, one plane with two wings, one set of scissors with two blades, however you want to look at it. And those two sides were simple. We were to go onto the ends of the earth and we were to stand until the end of time. In Matthew chapter 28, we are reminded that Jesus says to his disciples, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as we read earlier, we hear Jesus saying to his disciples, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. These are the great promises, and this is the great call placed upon all of the people of God. We go to the ends of the earth, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth with this message of Christ and with the hope of the gospel. And we stand until the end of time. We never give up. We never give in. We never walk away. These two sides of this remarkable commission given to us by God are our, are our, our great privilege and honour. I am reminded also that Matthew chapter 20, it doesn't tell us that we do this in our own strength. If you read it carefully, you hear the words of Jesus that tell us all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples, teaching and baptizing in my name. <clears throat> and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I remember one wonderful Welsh preacher trying to explain this to me. And he said, Malcolm, the great commission to go to live with such intentionality that we will transform and be a presence and a light to the world around us is is like a block of wood held in a great vice and that great vice has a great assurance and a great um, instruction the great assurance is all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me therefore you go we don't go in our own authority we go in Jesus's authority. We don't go in our own power. We go in Jesus's power. We don't go in our own ingenuity or intuition or creative strategies. We go in the promise that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. We go as his ambassadors. We go as his people. We go as his hands and his feet and as his heart into the world. And that's one side of the clamp. The other side is, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. This great instruction is held by these two clamps, the clamp of the authority of Christ with us and the clamp of the presence of Jesus 
with us and we go to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as I've already said, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is the story of the book of Acts, sisters and brothers. We read of it again and again. The Spirit is leading the people of God into areas where they have never been, pushing them into new territory. He breaks out in the pouring out of the Spirit in Acts 2 that they might be his witnesses. He drives them into the streets of Jerusalem in Acts 2, 3, and 4. He drives them into Judea in 4, 5, 6, and 7. He drives them into Samaria in 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. He drives them to Damascus with Paul's conversion as he is going to persecute Christians. And that great decision made in Antioch in Acts 13 that uh, Paul and Barnabas are to be set aside for the Lord's work sees the gospel being driven by the Spirit further and further and further out. It travels from the center of the religious world, Jerusalem, to the center of the political world, Rome, and the the, the momentous decision in Acts chapter 15 of the Jerusalem Council that the gospel and the church is not simply a sect, not simply a part of Judaism, but it is something that is for the world, means that the Spirit continues to push the church further and further with Paul's several missionary journeys until he reaches Rome, where Acts chapter 28 ends with these remarkable and powerful words, a picture of Paul imprisoned in lockdown, in house arrest, but the gospel is moving unhindered. The very last phrase in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, is that the gospel moved without hindrance. We stand until the end of time and we go to the ends of the earth. This is the great call and the great uh, privilege of the people of God. And we are called to make disciples and to be witnesses, not in our own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the call of God and it's what we're going to unpack right across this week. And what about the city? What about the Jeremiah 29 phrase that I have brought to you and the scripture that I have read? Well, in our going, and uh, Matthew 28 is not just about the intentionality of becoming a missionary, it's about living in such a way that our lives reflect these values and purposes of the kingdom and the kingdom's purposes. Where we are, we are to seek God's will and purpose. We are to seek God's purposes for our lives since the industrialization of Europe and the proliferation of cities from the 18th century onwards. We are called to reach cities, to reach nations, to reach communities with the good news of Jesus Christ and to be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ into the world. The reality is that we as God's people live somewhere. We are found somewhere. We shouldn't have a theology of absence, but a theology of presence, not a theology of running away, but a theology of being planted in our communities. And to be God's hands and feet where we are means that we have to remember some of the deep challenges of Scripture about living for God's uh, purposes as God's people in God's world as carriers of God's presence. And that can mitigate sometimes against some of the theology that we may think we have heard that tells us that we are to run away from the world, that we are to disengage from the world, that we are to be absent from it. But maybe the way that has been taught or the way we have understood it needs some correction. How do we combine the call to stand until the end of time and to go to the ends of the earth and to seek the welfare of the city and be present in our communities, to be present in the strategic places where God has placed us? Well, the first thing that we need to do is recognize that the theology of being distinct is not a theology of being absent. 
John 15, 19 and John 17, verses 14 to 16 are reminders that we are to be in the world, but not of it. But that's a phrase that we can misunderstand. And we can translate that into ideas like running away from our communities, closing our church doors, locking our lives away from the people around us. That isn't what God has called us to do. And it's certainly not what the New Testament teaches. And it's not what Jesus meant there. And it's not what John means in his general epistle or Paul means. Paul explores the same idea of being in the world as God's presence and power, but not shaped by that culture that we are finding in Romans chapter 12, being God's light and God's presence in the broken world around us in Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, and living as God's people in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. You see, when we read in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the eye, desire of the eyes, the pride of riches comes not from the Father, but from the world, and the world and its desires are passing away. These are instructions not about running away from our world and physical presence, but not being defined by its culture, not allowing the culture, the politics, the ideas, the worldviews of the society around us to become our worldviews, but instead to let gospel worldviews, gospel culture and gospel ideas invade the world. We live as God's people, his hands and feet, his feet, infusing our cities, infusing our workplaces, infusing our homes and being God's hands and feet where we are. That is what Jeremiah meant when he said, seek the welfare of the city. He was telling the people of Israel that as they were being drawn into captivity to places that they didn't want to be and facing challenges that they didn't know were around the corner, they were to live distinctly as God's people. Of course, they misunderstood that and they became assimilated into the culture. They became like the culture. That's not what we're called to be. It wasn't what Israel was called to be. We're called to be in the world distinctly as God's people. And that um, can express itself in a number of core commitments that I want to share with you as we come to a close. Number one, we are to be rooted in Christ and placed in the world. Where you are and what you do and where you live and where you work, that is the place where you can serve God. And if we cannot serve God where we are, we will never serve him where we are not. And understanding our whole lives as vocational is deeply under, deeply important for us as we carry the light of Christ into the world around us. Secondly, we understand what it is to be the hands and feet of Jesus into our culture, into our cities, into our workplaces. We serve the need in front of us. We are the presence of Christ. We carry the light of the world in our hearts and in our souls, in our conduct and our behavior. We have a, a deep and a profound understanding that we are God's people living in this world for him, a world that will one day be redeemed from the top to the bottom. Thirdly, we need to develop an ecclesiology and understanding of church that sees presence, proclamation, being prophetic, being the people of prayer and purpose as central. I mean by presence, we are his hands and feet, serving the poor, engaging with the marginalized. I mean by proclamation, explaining the gospel with words, teaching the whole counsel of God. I mean by being prophetic, challenging power and speaking up for those who have no voice and being a voice for the voiceless. Prayer is obvious. We do not do this in our own strength. We work as if it depends on us and we pray knowing it depends on God. And to be purposeful people is to live in God's purposes and plans always in every aspect of our lives. Fourthly, we celebrate vocation in all of its beauty and complexity. 
and all of its simplicity and its profundity. Sisters and brothers, I am deeply committed to supporting missional endeavor around the world. I want to be a church that is at the cutting edge, part of a church that is at the cutting edge of sending and supporting people, encouraging people as the Holy Spirit sends them around the world, standing with them financially, prayerfully, building teams around them. It takes a church to raise a traditional missionary and we should be sending them. We should be encouraging them. We should be hearing God together and finding ways of answering his call. And maybe God is calling you to do something that involves going to the ends of the earth. But maybe God is calling you to live as a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, an accountant, a factory worker, a civil servant in the city of Belfast or Bangor or London or New York or Helsinki or California or wherever you might be. You see, vocation is not just about those special things. Vocation is living in the place where God has called us with the glory that God has given us for the purposes that God has laid out in front of us. We need to discover and celebrate that in our churches once again. Fifthly, we serve God where we are, not where we are not. We're not looking for some other place to serve him. We're not waiting until everything is perfect. We serve God where we are. Belfast needs Christ. And Northern Ireland needs Christ. The Republic of Ireland needs Christ. Our cities and towns need Christ. And we stand with that. Jeremiah was saying to the exiles, serve God in exile, serve God in this city. Uh, sixthly, we understand and live out the gospel as an imperative in the world as the people of the missional God. That means we use words to explain that the gospel is this. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and following. There is a way back. There is a world to be transformed and we are called to be God's hands and feet. This gospel transforms us and makes us agents of hope and life and change in the mission of God. But people still need to hear the gospel with words. They still need to encounter it, to see it, to understand that there is a way out of the hopelessness and the despair that the world is offering them. We are the people with that message. And lastly, we remember the purposes of God at the very center of our lives. And we make God's glory our priority in the great adventure of our lives. Jeremiah, in that letter, in verse 12, 11 and following of Jeremiah chapter 29, says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. But they went through 70 years of heartbreak and pain. Those verses are put in cards as if they are little encouragements. But actually, they were written in a letter that was explaining to the people of Israel that they were going to go into exile. They were going to lose everything. What Jeremiah was doing was lifting their eyes to the bigger picture. That's what we need at the center of our gospel and missional imperatives. That's what we explore this week as we look at what it means to go to the ends of the earth and to serve our city. We remember that God wins. We remember that God will put all things right. We remember that the earth will be transformed. We remember the words from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 14, that one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So as we come to the end of this, my address to you tonight, I want to encourage you to listen closely to God across this week. We go to the ends of the earth. We stand until the end of time and we serve and seek the welfare of our city. We are the presence, the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ in the world that needs to know his grace, his mercy and his compassion. Wherever you are and whatever you face, may God give you great grace and strength as you serve him. God bless you.
Well, sisters and brothers and ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us tonight. What an encouragement it is to hear from God. And I pray that the Spirit of God will have spoken into your heart and into your life about all that he might be prompting you to do and calling you into. I'm really looking forward to all that lies ahead with us in worldwide this year across the week. And I want to encourage you to participate with us in all of that. Our Bible readings this year are led by Gary Miller, who is the principal of Queensland Theological College. And you can catch those at 11.30 a.m. every morning. Our evening celebrations are at 7.30 p.m. each evening, and you will be warmly welcomed to attend those too. There are a couple of afternoon seminars. There's a youth and student series of events. There are late night Zoom conversations, and there are prayer meetings through the week. So there are lots of different ways in which you can engage with us. And remember, you can invite friends, family, and people that you know that might be interested in mission and serving God. Not only those that are in Northern Ireland, but around the world, because everything is online. You can invite them to join us too. And it strikes me that it's important to remember that we are attending the event, not just watching it. We're not just looking at things on screens, but we're engaging with God who is present with us, present with all who have prepared, and present as we hear everything that he might say. You can find out all the details about this year's event at our website. Once again, can I thank you for being with us tonight? Can I assure you of my prayers? And I look forward to hearing all that God will do in you and through you. And I pray that God will speak to each of us and help us to listen for his voice and follow his leading, that we might pray, give and go and be part of God's great mission in the world. Thank you and God bless you. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.